Hello and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thanks for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. This lesson was previously recorded by Michelle in front of a live audience. Paul saw his suffering for his faith as being a privilege rather than a punishment. He knew that he was sharing in the continuing work of Christ as the church was extended and believers were built up in their faith. He worked with every bit of the strength that Christ had given him, not only to see others come to faith in Jesus, but also to help them to continue to walk with Christ free from the deception of false teachers. Paul was careful about the way that he lived because he knew that Christ's honor is in our hands and that our actions can either confirm or destroy the faith of others. So to that end, he modeled what it is to live one's life with Christ as Lord, holding to the truth of the gospel with thankfulness no matter what the personal cost. Paul was anxious that the church not be taken captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies, depending on the principles and traditions of the world rather than on Christ. And so he warned them against following religious traditions rather than trusting in Christ alone. He was adamant that they should not lose their connection to Jesus as the head of the body that is his church on earth. So today, as we begin in Colossians chapter 3, we hear Paul's challenge to walk free from our past bondage to sin and to live as those who've been given a new life in Christ. Referring to what he'd previously said about the symbolism that's seen in our water baptism, Paul begins in verse 1 saying, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory." In water baptism, as a person is plunged underneath the surface of the water, it is a symbol of the person they once were being put to death. In the same way, their being raised from the water is a symbol of being raised to a new life in Christ. Those who believe in Jesus have been born again. And as we learn to look at things from God's perspective, and as we renew our way of thinking by being in God's word, we are are changed. However, when Paul says that we are to set our hearts on things above, he doesn't mean that we are to be so heavenly minded that we are no earthly good. Let me explain. God is not asking us to withdraw from the work and the activity of the world, but as Jesus said, we are to be in it, but not of the world. We are to retain our usual relationships with others, but our values will now be different to those of the world around us, because it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. In fact, in verse 4 there, Paul refers to Jesus saying that Christ is our life. This was something that Paul held to firmly, and as we've been studying his letters to the Galatians, the Philippians, and the Colossians, we 
we've seen him say several similar things. In Galatians 2 verse 20, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Then in Philippians 1 verse 21, he declared, for to me to live is Christ. You see, for the Christian, Christ is our life. And because of our love for him, we will no longer live in the day-to-day patterns of sin that we once used to. Paul puts it this way in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these— anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. He begins by saying very strongly that therefore, because we've been raised to a new life in Christ, we're to put to death whatever belongs to our old sinful nature. Essentially, he's saying we have to put to death our self-centeredness. The word Paul uses there for put to death also means to deprive something of its power. Once a person truly begins to follow Christ, the old way of life will lose its power over them and they will be transformed. As I often say, Christ accepts us just the way that we are, but he doesn't want us to stay the way that we are because he knows that our lives will be so much better free of the bondage of our past. And Paul then goes on to specifically list some of those areas in which our lives are to change. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry, all have to be eliminated. Now, I really don't want to dwell on all of these things because I think they're pretty self-evident. We know what they are. But one thing I must point out here is that the word that Paul uses for sexual immorality there is in Greek, porneia, which is the root for our English word pornography. And so what he says there about sexual immorality, it really applies to all sexual acts outside of marriage, whether a person is a participant or just an observer. It is the same thing. After listing these worldly traits, Paul then states that though we used to walk in these ways in the life we once lived, now that we have been born again, we're to do so no longer. And he goes on to say in verse 8 that we must also rid ourselves of other things that were associated with our lives before we came to Christ. The Greek there for rid yourself is a very interesting phrase because it is sometimes translated as put aside 
or put off. So when he says put off these things such as anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, the picture is really of someone taking off their old dirty clothing in order to put on something new and something clean. So I want you to understand that though Christ gives us the power to change and he even gives us these new attributes to wear, as it were, we have to intentionally cooperate with the changes he wants to make. If you think about that picture of changing your clothes, it's helpful because you know that that doesn't just happen accidentally. It doesn't just happen unexpectedly while you're lying on your bed. It happens because you choose to take off the old and intentionally put on the new. So we have to choose to rid ourselves of anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from our lips. And if you consider these words, you can really begin to see how they do operate often together and how ungodly responses can go from bad to worse. For example, what begins with anger can quickly escalate to rage. Rage can give birth to malice, in other words, hatred, which can in turn lead a person to say untrue things about another, often with an outburst of offensive words. Now, if you're like me, you might read that list and think, oh Lord, I'm in trouble because I was angry with someone just the other day and I know it was sinful anger, it was not righteous anger. What I'd say to you is remember that we all sin from time to time and we can be forgiven by God if we repent. However, if we are habitually an angry person, if we live our lives in hatred of others, or if filthy language is just a part of our day-to-day -day life, then it shows we have a different problem because you see our continued disobedience proves that Christ is not Lord or ruler of our lives. We are also not to lie to one another. Jesus declared that Satan is the father of lies, and so we really aren't to speak his native language anymore. On the contrary, we have taken off our old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So as we begin to choose to change, we will not only know our heavenly father more, but we will become more like him. And here, in this need for transformation, according to verse 11, there is no difference between people, because Gentile and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, all of us need this transformation and one group of people is not any better than another. So Paul urges in verse 12, therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. 
So irrespective of our past, having believed in Christ, three things are now true of us. We have become God's chosen people. And not only are we holy because of the blood of Jesus, we know that we are dearly loved by God with an unconditional love. And that changes everything. You know, for me, I was never very popular at school. The other kids didn't want me on their teams. But God, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, has chosen me. More than that, he's cleansed me from my sin and he set me apart for a special purpose in his kingdom. I am holy. But perhaps the best thing of all is that I know that I am dearly loved by my heavenly Father, not for anything that I've done, but just because he loves me. You know, as a child, I really didn't feel loved for who I was. Everything was based on my school accomplishments, and I felt that I had to be perfect. I remember several times my mom being disappointed in me if I came second in class, because second was just not good enough. So when I became a Christian, it was amazing to me to realize that God doesn't treat his children like that. We are dearly loved by him, not because of what we've done, but just because he loves us. So when we realize who we are in Christ and how God sees us, that makes us want to be like Jesus, full of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Let's look at those words more carefully, though, because all of them have to do with how we relate to other people. When Paul says that we are to put on compassion, he doesn't mean that we're to merely feel sorry for those less fortunate than ourselves. This means that we are to be sorry enough to do something about it. We're to act with kindness, which can also mean that we're to act with integrity or goodness. And the next virtue he mentions is humility. As we learned in previous lessons, biblical humility isn't about thinking less of yourself. Real humility is about not thinking of yourself at all. Gentleness is a very interesting word here because it doesn't mean weakness. Rather, it was a word that was often used to describe power or strength under control. And patience is the ability to wait with endurance without giving in to anger and frustration. Paul goes on to say that because God has forgiven us our sins, we are to bear with or put up with one another and forgive others as the need arises. Now, of course, forgiveness doesn't mean that what someone did to us was right, but it means that we are willing to trust God with the outcome. For when we forgive someone, we really release their debt to God, knowing that he will either bring them to repentance or hold them to account in the end. And over all these virtues, we are to put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Why is love so important? It is important because not only does it prove to others that we are Christ's disciples, but love is also the foundational characteristic of God. God is love, and real love is the one thing Satan cannot replicate no matter how hard he tries. Paul continues in verse 15. 
Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdoms through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So Paul says that we are to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And that could also be translated, let the peace of Christ be the decider of all things within your hearts. In other words, we're to let Christ rule over everything we feel. And As that happens, his peace will overflow us to other people. All the qualities Paul has been speaking of are not things that we can manufacture in our own strength, though, but rather as we depend on God, as we choose to yield to the Holy Spirit, all of these virtues become more evident as he works within us. And we'll experience a thankfulness then for all that God has accomplished in us and through us because of Jesus Christ. Paul advises that for this way of life to become a reality, we must let the message of Christ live in us richly, because the more time we spend in the Word of God, the more that we do what it says, the more that we worship with others, the more opportunity the Holy Spirit will have to work in our lives, and the greater the transformation will be. In verse 17, Paul encourages us to represent Christ well, bringing glory to his name in every word we speak and in everything that we do. Not because we're trying to score points with God for good behavior, but rather it's to be done out of thankfulness for all he has already done for us in Christ. Our relationship with God is to affect our relationship with others. And Paul then goes on to address the most intimate relationships of all as he gives the Colossians advice for Christian households. Before we even look at what he says, it's very important, though, to understand the culture into which he spoke and how families operated before Christ and the good news about him was preached. Under Jewish law, a woman was a thing, a possession of her husband, rather like his flocks or his herds might have been. Now, that had not been God's intent, but it had come by the tradition of men passed down over time. Marriage was a very one-sided relationship where a husband was able to divorce his wife for any reason should he so wish, but she had no rights of her own whatsoever. It was no different in the Greek culture either. In that culture, wives' sole purpose in life was to bear children. They were kept secluded indoors and were not even allowed to go out into the marketplace. They were not allowed to eat with men. And whereas the wife had to be pure and virtuous, the husband was allowed to have as many extramarital affairs as he wished. So just as it was in the Jewish culture, all of the privileges and rights in the Greek culture belong to the husband also, while all of the duties belong to the wife.
Roman family life also had its defects, for there was something called the law of the father's power, in which a father had absolute rights over his family and children, no matter what their ages. He was the one to initially decide whether or not his newborn baby lived or died. He had the authority to sell one of his children into slavery, should he so wish. He could do anything he chose to do as the patriarch of his family, and his rule over them lasted as long as he lived. Again, the balance of power in the Roman family was unequal, with all of the advantage being given to the man. The good news is, is that God wants us to live differently. He wants us to live counter-culturally. And so when Paul begins to address the relationships he does, starting in verse 15, we have to understand that what he said, his words were truly radical in that day because we are going to see him emphasize a mutual love and respect for one another on the basis that all people have equal value to God in Christ. And he speaks to both sides of each of the different relationships. Look at verse 18 through 21, where he deals with the family. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. To help us understand what Paul means when he says that wives are to submit to their husbands, The word there actually means that they are to voluntarily cooperate with their husbands so as to represent God well. There is to be a bond of mutual love and respect between the husband and wife. Rather than the husband being a dictator and the wife a servant, Christianity teaches that marriage is a partnership. Paul declares that a Christian husband is called to love his wife and not be harsh with her. In a very similar passage in Ephesians 5 verse 28 to 29, Paul declares that the Christian husband is to love his wife just as Christ loved the church, even being willing to die for her. And can I just say that that is not always to be taken in a literal sense. Paul is saying that the husband is to be willing to die to his own self, his own agenda, for the benefit of his wife, so that she can become all that God wants her to be. And she is to die to her own self, too, for the benefit of her husband. The Christian marriage relationship is one of mutual love and cooperation. The child and parent relationship in a Christian family is also to be very different. Paul called upon children to obey their parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. You see, it is out of our love for Christ and our trust in his goodness that we're able to do the right thing as as long as our parents have legal influence over us. But Paul also immediately went on to command that fathers not embitter or alienate their children because that would lead to them becoming discouraged. I grew up in a non-Christian family with an absentee father. 
Like many men, he worked away from home and my mother was the one with absolute control over me. I know that she did her best, but she was often harsh and very critical of me and I grew up frustrated and discouraged. It was only once I became a Christian that I really understood that God did not treat his children that way. And eventually I was able to lead her to the Lord and our relationship improved from that point onward. As those who follow Christ, we can never forget the importance of a parent encouraging their child because encouragement accomplishes far more than constant criticism ever will. Paul then turns to the greatest problem of all, the relationship between slave and master. And it is important for us to have some background on that awful topic of slaves as well. At the time that Paul wrote to the Colossians, there were about 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And this was a very common thing. Although some masters were kind, most of them were not. Culture viewed slaves as being less than human and they were seen as being expendable possessions. Torture and death were normal and if any slave who ran away was recaptured, they would either be killed or branded with an F on their forehead for fugitivus, a Latin word meaning fugitive in English. Slaves didn't have the right to marry, and if they had children, those children belonged to their master. It was a horrible, unjust system, and though it was an offense to God, it existed in the culture of that time. And though Paul was not approving slavery, he wanted to speak to slaves about how they could perhaps win their masters for Christ. And in some strange way, this this will have an application to us also as we work for other people, albeit willingly. Notice, though, that this section is far longer than the other two, and its length may well be because of the talks which Paul likely had with the runaway slave, Onesimus, who we are going to meet in our next chapter. Let's read from verse 22 through verse 1 of the next chapter, chapter 4, because what Paul says goes past the break. Paul declares, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Paul calls on Christians to work hard at all times, not only when their earthly master's eye was on them. Paul knew that if they showed integrity because they loved and respected the Lord, it would certainly speak to those around them. He wanted them to remember that it was really Christ they were serving, not man. 
Under Roman law, a slave could not possess any property whatsoever, and yet Paul wanted to remind them that they would certainly receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. For he said, It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. You know, whatever happens in this life, a time is coming when the balance will be adjusted. Evil doing will find its punishment, and faithful diligence will receive its reward. Slave or free, God is judge of all men, and we cannot forget God's lack of favoritism, his lack of partiality, because what is required of the Christian servant also applies to their master. And Paul urged those in authority to treat others in fair and just ways, always remembering that they too had a master in heaven to whom they must one day give an account. As Paul teaches in all of these different relationships, we are to treat others in the same way we want to be treated. We are to represent Christ in all our dealings as we live different to the culture around us. We are to be imitators of God as his dearly loved children, willing to die to self in order to live for Christ. And our lives are to be marked with God's love that is available in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father God, we do ask that you would help us to just depend on you more, that we would willingly choose to take off the old things associated with our past life and put on the things that you call us to, that we might re represent you well. Let us entrust our future to you, knowing that there is going to be a time when all balance is one day restored, and we look forward to that moment when we stand with you in glory. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. Michelle's messages are also available on all major podcast platforms and on her website at intheword.com.